Welcome to the New Hope Sermon of the Week. We hope you are encouraged by this message by Pastor Tom Sturgis. If you are here for the first time walking in, we're in what is probably part four of a revisiting of the issue of unforgiveness. And it's titled this time through due to the fact that I, this is a subdirectory series on the larger series of, of studying God's opinion. On, and then I'll just have to leave that hanging there. So here, here's the working definition in the title. Unforgiveness when God's opinion is not enough. Unforgiveness is when God's opinion is not enough. If you've been here any time with us during the 16 years that God has given us the grace of being here at New Hope, you'll know that there are two topics that re- return repeatedly for me. One is worship because it's just the center of all our existence in our relationship with God. And number two is unforgiveness, because I believe at the core of the problem of unforgiveness is ascribing worship to the wrong thing, which is why God is so extreme in his response. There's teaching online you can find about that. And if you'd like notes on what I just said, all you got to do is is email me. Uh, And as a matter of fact, if you have enough questions about it, I will email you my what I call my master file on anything, which means... It is an aggregation of thoughts that may or may not be in any linear sequence. So it's up to you to read through it and allow the Holy Spirit to direct you. And if you can't make sense out of it, it just means you're not spiritual. That's all. So, uh, but I'll be glad to send you, uh, that was a joke. I'll be glad to send you notes. But unforgiveness, listen, is the state of being where God's opinion is not enough. That, that comes from, I believe it's sustained by Scripture throughout, but Matthew 18 in particular is, um, um, is, is the point of emphasis. Two weeks ago, uh, last week was a departure from that that I think was a spontaneous Holy Spirit type of thing. But two weeks ago, uh, we looked at a line from the Lord's Prayer. And earlier in the service, I had you pray the Lord's Prayer and in particular, uh, give us this day our daily bread. Um, forgive us our trespasses as our debts as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation. And we studied the language there. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And we looked at a couple of the words in their original sense, and they essentially suggest, Father, close the door on the room to unforgiveness. Number two, if I attempt to go into it, drag me across the ground. That teaching is online, podcasts are available, where you can go and hear that teaching in some detail. So here's the deal. Everyone look at me. Uh, I wanted to say to you that if you ever find yourself at any moment where you're losing the battle with God, where he's dragging you away from offense when you so desperately want to bathe in it just a little bit more and you want to visit the room and think about it so you can create your own sense of justice and God is dragging you kicking and screaming away from there, I believe it is God's response to say, don't blame me, you asked me to do it. That is the Lord's Prayer. Father, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. If you don't want God to do it, don't say the prayer. If you don't want God to do it, don't say the prayer. Turn and say that to the person next to you, please, right now. Reinforce that. Okay, good. Now, we're going to reread the story that's at the center of this. It's very lengthy, but I'm going to read quickly, and I'm going to skip verses and essentially tell the story. It's Peter coming to Jesus, Matthew 18, verse 21. He's coming to Jesus, and he's asking the question, and he says, Then Peter came and said to him, him being Jesus, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Now, something we haven't studied that just has, and I'm going to really do my best to, to, to stay exactly on, on track and focus um, uh, this morning and, and sincerely pray to that end. I know there's lots of jokes about uh, through the years how often I chase rabbits, but I'm going to try to not have any rabbit chasing um, tomorrow. Hey, you're speaking of rabbits. <laughs> three o'clock in the morning. I get up three or four times a night. That's terrible. I, I just do. I don't know why. It's sin in my life, I guess. Um, the, um, uh, but I've, for 10 years, actually, that's not the case. My wife will will tell you why. And I won't mention it publicly, especially without her being here. But if she were here, she would tell you that it has to do with her snoring so loudly, it wakes me up. So, but those are her words, not mine. Okay. I got up in the middle of the night and, um, 
And uh, my daughter-in-law had come through earlier in the evening. Well, I walk into, and I turn around to walk back to my bedroom. We live out, sort of on 10 acres of property on the river, and, and there's creatures everywhere, okay, all sorts of, and I love it. Boy, I shouldn't say this because my wife is listening, I think, but oh well, I'm too committed to this. So I turned to walk to my bedroom, and there, not far from the front door, laying across the hallway, is about a three-foot black snake. And so I see it at 3 o'clock in the morning. Obviously, I'm walking around. I see it at 3 o'clock in the morning, and I look down. You know, it sort of startles me. Um, I I have sort of a... Anyways, uh, the fascination with snakes. I I enjoy killing them, I guess. But... um, uh, but I, I understand, you know, what they, what they do and black snake's not a bad thing. Cause we live out there and I figure the more of them on the outside, the less rats make it to the inside of my house. So it's a win-win. So I looked down and my first thought was, okay, this is a really bad trick by Laura. And I'm thinking, boy, am I going to get her when I see her? This is just a joke. Cause, cause, um, um, she'd come through after, uh, after her. she was still moving after I'd gone to bed. And, and I thought, my daughter is going to be in lots of trouble here. And so I thought, bad joke. And I took a step toward it, and the bad joke moved on the floor. Um, anyhow, that was just a story. I was thinking of rabbits and creatures, and that's how ADD works, by the way. And here's another note. I just want to tell you that I read an article recently about the fact that from a mental standpoint, Johnny, there is no such thing truly as multitasking from a psychological or uh, analytical uh, neurological functionality standpoint you may think you can multitask but you truly can't let me tell you how i disagree with him i believe there is a possibility and it is called for those of you who like me who have suffered from this for your life attention deficit disorder some people see that as a curse we are living proof that multitasking can happen okay enough said about that now Then Peter came to him and said to him, how often shall my... Boy, I thank God for the word of God. If nothing else, it brings my brain back to where I need to be. It's entirely utilitarian. How often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. I began to reflect on that verse. And actually, I reflected on it through the lens of a question that came that I can't even address this morning. And it's about self-forgiveness. I'll pick that up next week briefly. But and, and I began to read journal and articles and, and, and from psychologists and whatnot and even pastors about um, how we forgive ourselves. But did, did you, I'm going to tell you why next week forgiving ourselves is, is really, it's not even in the Bible. And you're going to go, oh man, I'm really in trouble. You're not in trouble, but we're going to come to terms. And this sort of gives us a way. See, Jesus begins to speak to him. He says, I don't say to you up to 70 times 7. So he's asserting that Peter's conclusion is a wrong one. Go back and listen to the previous teachings, and you can hear a little bit more of an explanation on that as to why he said that. But he said, I say to you up to 70 times 7. Then verse 23, he says, for the kingdom of heaven may be compared to. And what we have learned in the weeks to come, by the uh, weeks that have passed, by the time you get to the end of this story, you discover that Jesus is not just talking about some fairy tale king and two servants. He is talking about God and us, okay? That's what we discover by the time we get to the end of the story so we can give that away. But he said, I did not say to you up to 70 times seven. So he's saying your, your reference on this is wrong. Well, let me show you what else is wrong. Watch this. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Now, I've got to, to skip ahead here. Uh, Amanda, I didn't plan to do it in this sequence. Amanda runs our pro presenter, but I'm going to need Psalm 51, that passage that I sent you. Let me see if I can find it here. Where did I put that? It's up. I knew that. Watch this. This is David speaking. David is speaking. This is a Psalm that's written in reflection about his sin of adultery and ultimately of murder with that involved his relationship with Bathsheba. If those terms aren't familiar to you, then then you'll have to go look them up. It's a, it's a rather popular Bible story from King David in the old Testament. So be gracious. O God, uh, to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse my, me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. 
against, here, would you read verse 4 with me? Just those, that first line to the break. Against you, you only, I have sinned. Now, there's much more to say from this passage there about God's just response to him. But against you only have I sinned. Now, the second passage I'd like for you to glance at with me real quickly is Luke chapter 15. And I want to show you that, and she'll probably have it up on the screen before I can find it in my notes here. It is. There it is. Okay? This is the story of the prodigal son. I recently taught on that as well. We recently studied that. Prodigal son, another familiar Bible story. It's a story of a father who has two sons, and one comes and says, you know, give me everything that I have coming when you die. Give me my inheritance. In other words, when you die, I have a certain mount coming to me. I want it now. And it was a huge offense, as Jesus would tell this story, because it is essentially like, look at me, look at, look this way. It's essentially like the son coming up and saying, I wish you were dead. And so give me what, give me what is mine, my inheritance. And the father gives it to him. And it's a, a, an amazing story with some great moving parts. Luke chapter 15, read it when you go home. It is the third of a trilogy of stories in Luke chapter 15. Uh, but watch, at this point in the story... The son number, uh, the, the, the son has run off, spent all of his stuff, squandered it, and now he's starving and in a pig pen. And it says, but when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread for I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. Who did he say like David, he had sinned against? God. I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. Now, how many know that we are victims? So when somebody does something wrong, something that doesn't impart life to us in whatever sense, it may truly be wrong. How many know in the broadest sense, that's typically a sin. And a sin is when we accept any other opinion of God about me other than my, God's opinion of me. Please hear that definition. That means I'm listening to some other source of worth, something else that says that can translate to anything from greed to lust to anger to you begin to build a list. But all we do is we go looking for our worth and our identity to be fulfilled someplace outside of God and his opinion of how I should live. That's what sin is, okay? So he says here, I have sinned against God and in your sight. In other words, he's acknowledging it affected you. He practices speech, and when he gets back and starts making his way back to the farm, the father sees him, and sure enough, he says that, I am sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. A powerful story, but I wanted to excerpt that line because he reinforces what David says. Now, let's go back to Peter's first question. Everyone look at the preacher. How many times should I forgive when my brother has sinned against me? Well, Jesus corrects the number of times. But what we learn throughout the story and what the story tells us, listen, is that ultimately sin is not against me or against you, but is against God. And we suffer the effects of that. Okay? Now, I'm going to come back to a few things you probably need to write down. Now, as we move through this story, let me abbreviate it. We're going to skip straight to verse 33. Um, And I want to go ahead and insert here a working definition of mercy. We have lots of them. I just went through my master file on that, and I probably have 15 extrapolated definitions that I work from. Mercy's huge. It is the the God initiative towards mankind. But we've sort of watered it down, if you will, to all the least common denominators. And here it is, that, that mercy is God's refusal to join any opinion of me. That's sort of small, but if you can see it, mercy is God's refusing to accept any opinion of me above his opinion of me. Now, what we've learned through the opinion series, for those of you that may be new and say, well, I didn't know that God's opinion was just another opinion. God's opinion is not another opinion. God's opinion is the final word. We're using it as sort of a play on words, okay? Very much in the way that Jesus would do in using parables and the parabolic method. But God's opinion is the final word on on, on everything, in all matters of life and godliness. It's the final deal. But see, mercy, put that back up so people can grab it for just one second, Amanda. That mercy is God refusing to accept any opinion of me above my opinion, above, uh, excuse me, above his opinion of me. And in particular, for those of you that may be here this morning that are on any Sunday, we seem to have teachers or, or pastors visiting on vacation, they drop through. 
Um, uh, go check out the 74 times that, that the, the eleos or eleo appears in the New Testament and stick that definition in there and see. You find it where the blind men called out. And the prevailing opinion about the blind men is that they were blind men. And so when they say, Son of David, have mercy on us, they were essentially saying, Son of David, please stop and refuse to reinforce the prevailing opinion. It says God stopped and healed them. And when he walked away, the prevailing opinion was no longer their blind men. That went away. And every place it shows up, when, when Paul speaks to writing to Timothy, he said, I was previously a blasphemer, uh, a murderer. I was a horrible person. And yet God, great in his refusal, right, refusal to join my opinion of me above his opinion of me, knocked me off my donkey, made me a minister of the gospel, as unbelievable as it is. Time after time it shows up in uh, Matthew chapter 9 when, when the guy, Matthew, was a tax collector who would end up writing a gospel. And he, Jesus invites him to eat, and the, and, the, and the teachers of the law said, send him out. He said, you need to go and learn what this means, that I desire mercy more than a refined worship system. I desire, he said, your real ministry as teachers of the law should be stepping up and saying, listen, God has a much higher opinion of you than I do. And he's essentially saying, watch me, watch, watch, watch. When he invited the tax collector who was a, a crudball, because he was working for the Romans, collecting stuff from the Jewish people, and very often in and around the temple. They would do this. So, I mean, this guy was a real creep. And Jesus invites him to come and, and, and eat with him. And he says, what are you doing gathering with this tax collector? Now, let me give you some, an, an applied interpretation. Well, Jesus said, the problem is, is that the only opinion you have of him is his already existing opinion of him. He says, the difference between you and me, you need to go understand what it, what, when the prophet Hosea spoke and said, here's what God desires. God desires people who will step up and say, I represent God's opinion of you as much different, much higher than the opinion you have. He says, but instead, all you've done is refine your worship system so that what you do is step up and reinforce what they are. Anybody get those snapshots throughout the New Testament? John chapter 8, a woman caught in the act of adultery, drug out before Jesus, thrown in his feet in the courtyard of the temple, and he said she should be stoned. Well, that's what the law said. All they could do was reinforce the prevailing opinion. But later on, in yet a different way, Jesus says the real test of, of you guys who you think you are, well, who are you? We're sons of Abraham. Really? Sons? I don't think so. He said, if you were sons, you'd know the truth, and know the truth makes you free. Well, we're already free. Really? You're free? Okay, well, if you're sons, let me tell you this. Watch. He says, he that the son makes free is free indeed. Now, we typically read that verse thinking it's just talking about Jesus, and in a referential way it is. But he was talking to them. He says, if you're really sons and you're really free, the greatest test is that you have the power to make others free. But all you do is show up and reinforce the chains of their own opinion that they've worn for so long that their heart condemns them. And you'd show up and say, yep, your opinion's right. You're an adulteress. You're horrible. You're this. You're that. You're one thing. You're a tax collector. But he says, if you're a real son of the house, you will step up and you have the power to make free. He that the son makes free is free indeed. You will know truth and the truth will make you free. See, beloved, we are called to walk into a world where people live under a prevailing opinion and they do all sorts of stupid things. That doesn't mean we don't acknowledge the sin they're living in. We simply say, you're living by an opinion that is still whispered from the first bad opinion that mankind had, and that was the hiss of a serpent in the garden. The book of Revelation said that was the devil himself speaking and telling you that God's opinion was not the final opinion. You could just consider another opinion. And so they walked out of a garden where they should have lived in full purpose and sentenced to find purpose without a relationship with the purpose giver. Now, I just said a mouthful of stuff there. But we're called to walk into the world and say, the problem is you're listening to the wrong voice still. You've accepted the wrong opinion. I got good news. Now, what happens when we walk into people who are broken and they hurt me? And here's where we're going to skip through this story because this story says that what happened was servant number one comes into the great king and he owes him today's equivalency of about $8 billion. None of us here can wrap our heads around $8 billion and that's why Jesus chose such a number because the ability to forgive... The ability to forgive a debt like that would have been inconceivable to every person listening. Listen to me, please. Pay close attention. The ability to wipe away a debt like that, first of all, the number was just so astronomically beyond consideration. They'd go, okay, really? 
$8 billion. That was more than the annual debt of, or taxation of any province or Roman province. I mean, just, it's insane. And so the servant number one, he says, wow, I can't believe this. He goes out and he finds somebody who owes him about today's equivalency of somewhere between ten dollars and $13,000, one third of a year's wage. Now we can wrap our head around that. Everyone look here. How many know we can never wrap our head around? Because let me say this. We know by the end of the story that Jesus is not talking about a fairy tale from Disney. He is talking about God the Father and he's talking about us. So now those of us who stand on the other side of the cross of Christ. See, the guy who was telling this story died on a cross for us and made payment of a debt that we could never pay by any means imaginable. And so we become the servant in the story. And when we show up, he says, I have released and I've made payment for that debt. We can't wrap our head around that. I don't care what you say. You can't wrap your head around I can't wrap my head around that. And so I'm forced to do this accidental song. And I'll never know how much it cost to pay for my sins up on a cross. I'll never know. Anybody get what I'm talking about? And just say amen right there. No, say it louder than that. Okay. Amen. Amen. That we'll never get it. But how many know while we can't wrap our heads around what God paid for our forgiveness with the blood of his son and Jesus in the death on the cross, we can for sure wrap our head around the transgression and the debt owed to us by people. We can articulate it. We can lay it out. But God said what we learned from this. Well, let me tell you what God said. See, servant number one goes out to servant number two in the story and he finds him and he says, um, uh, you, you owe me. And he falls down and he says, please have patience and, and give me a chance and I'll pay you back. Which was the exact statement servant number one had said to the king. But the great king said, no, you know what? Forget that. So his friends of servant number one find out what's happened to servant number one and servant number two. And it said they're deeply grieved. Let's see if we can find it in the story. Uh, uh, verse 29, it says, so his fellow slave fell to the, uh, no, that's not it. Let's keep going beyond that. Uh, so when, verse 31, when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, the Lord said, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Here's verse 33. Here it comes. Everyone, please pay, please pay close attention. Matter of fact, would you join me in reading the word of God out loud? Right from the screen. Join me. Should you not also have had, what? The refusal to join in the opinion of him the same way that I refuse to join you in your opinion of yourself. See, so just stick the definition in there. Should you not have also had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way I had mercy on you? But I've got to emphasize this. See, because you'll be relieved to know that the preacher reads the Bible after I leave church on Sunday. <clears throat> and... That should have been a place of laughter. I'm really disturbed that it wasn't a point of laughter. I said, man, you probably elbowed and said, boy, that's good to know because I've wondered. <laughs> the, the, the Sermon on the Mount is absolutely destroying me right now. I'm reading through Matthew 5 through 7. I'm in Matthew because it's a kingdom of God book of probably all the gospels are, but this kingdom and, and the orderedness of God, and it is absolutely destroying me. The eight Beatitudes, I'm going, oh, I'm rereading a book called A Divine Conspiracy by Dallas Willard and somehow what I missed the first time through and I'll probably miss a bunch of stuff the second time through but it is absolutely destroying me. And in the midst of this, this whole thing about mercy, matter of fact, let me just leap to that. You want to look at the Beatitudes quickly. Matthew chapter 5. I'm not going to read them all. There's eight of them. And I've taught them at great detail, word studies, and say, here's how you can live the blessed life. Because it says, verse 3, it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the gentle. Blessed are those who hunger. And, and, and I, I, I've read it through Western eyes. I don't know what to tell you. I can't wait to get back to teach on it, to walk around to a different angle and say, oh, here's what it means. Now, verse 7 says, Blessed are the merciful 
for they shall receive mercy. Now, my new suspicion is these are not commandments to live the blessed life. But rather, Jesus was, was enumerating certain points of existing consciousness within the minds of the Pharisees with how God worked. Now, now I just I got to leave that hanging there. Because in, in the same way, by the way, for those of you that study scripture, for the same way some years back, I, I threatened or, uh, to do a series on the armor of God that approached it. Instead of looking at the pieces in Ephesians 6 of the armor of God and the helmet, the shield, the, the breastplate and the, the sword and the shoes and all of that and all that's associated with them, that I believe instead of Paul outlining, listen closely, a list of things we need to put in place so that we can live defensively, if you will, and and ultimately ends up there. I believe Paul is outlining six points of primary attack that come in the life of every person and every believer. And, man, that just blows that whole passage wide open. In the same fashion, what if Jesus may be saying something different than we want him to say? We're wanting, and, but, so here's the deal. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, Here's my struggle. Amanda, you're going to need to put this one on the screen and leave it there for a second because we need to let it sort of sink in. Uh, And it is the phrase regarding mercy. And it says, it starts with, I'm not sure. Jesus is saying, I hope this is large. Yeah, it's big enough. Okay. Now, we've got to leave this here for a moment because here's what's messing with me. She's going to leave it up there while I'm talking, but look at me right now. In the story of forgiveness, he is saying, um, why didn't you give what I gave you? So while I'm wrestling with the Beatitudes that's been typically taught, if you want mercy, give mercy. Okay? I think Jesus may be saying something different, and I don't even have time to really go into that, but, but look. I'm not sure Jesus is saying, quote, in order to receive mer- mercy you have not yet received, you must give mercy to others you know, they have not yet gotten. Now, my problem with that is, is if we can receive mercy just by giving mercy, then the payment of the cross becomes sort of null and void. Do you get that? Now, let me see if I can do this right, because I'm at a weird moment here. Amanda, leave those words on the screen. You look at me. I need probably five screens here this morning, <laughs> okay? But just indulge me. Maybe you can see the ones I see in my mind. Maybe not. In the story of unforgiveness, it went away. I hate that. Oh, it's back. Good. Amanda, you're becoming more and more like the Holy Spirit. You come and go, and I have no idea um, why or when, but I just hope you'll be there when I need you. Um, um, I'm full-blown chasing them today, guys. Uh, In the story, he says, should you have not also had mercy like I had on you? Right? Let's finish. Let's look at the screen. I am not sure Jesus is saying in order to receive mercy you have not yet received, you must give mercy to others they have not yet gotten. I should, I'll fix that when I get home. But I'm certain he is saying, if you have already received mercy, you most certainly should be giving it away to others. Now, that really needs to sink in because there's penalty in the story because servant number one did not do that. He was turned over to the tormentors. Now, that's important. Two weeks ago, three weeks ago, I think I talked about what that means. That it doesn't mean he sends you to hell for eternity. Watch. An eternal state of being without mercy. Watch. The eternal state of being without the force of God's opinion anywhere around me at work is otherwise known as hell. Luke chapter 16 points that out to us and says, mercy can't reach you there. You know what else I've thought since then, since making that statement? Because I go home like you and say, I wonder if everything the preacher said today is true. I really do. And I get that, that I'm the preacher. But here's the deal. I'm working on this statement. I haven't even written out yet, but it's just going to... That hell, and I'm going to take a shot at it, and it's not in my notes, and I shouldn't, but the hell... 
See, it's not created for us. It's created for the devil and demons. Everybody get that? And you get that we don't, and you get that the teaching from many weeks ago about judgment is the result of God saying, great, if you insist, I'll let you walk in your opinion of you above my opinion of you. Listen to me. Look at the pastor. That is true in an eternal sense and in a right now sense. The eternal sense of God saying, I'll, I'll let you walk in the, your own choice. And when he does, judgment is a place where mercy is not present. But God doesn't do it to us, beloved. That's not in Scripture. We do it to ourselves. If that is true, here's a question I have then. Would that not, Hans, would that not make hell God's most desperate expression to absolutely preserve the right that we have to choose? I want to say that again because that's messing with me in my own private devotional. Hell then becomes God's most desperate expression to ensure our right to choose. Can that sink in for a moment? That I can get back to God at any point that I want simply by choice. But watch, if hell is eternal torment, what is temporary torment right now? It's also a place where the force of mercy is not brought to bear right now in this life. And it says, if you don't forgive one another from your heart, he says, God turns you over to the tormentor. That fiery zinging. Have you ever heard anybody say, by the way, have you ever noticed that, and and I mentioned the armor, I didn't plan to, but it says he's given us a shield of faith that is a shield against the fiery darts of the adversary. And what's amazing poetic truth is at the end of the age, the place of eternal torment involves fire. Have you ever heard someone say about unforgiveness and something somebody's done wrong to them? Listen, 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 listen. That just burns me up. You ever heard that? Did you know it's true? They're not in hell now, but they're living with the effect of hell in their life. Why? What extinguishes the fire? I didn't plan to teach on this. What extinguishes, according to Ephesians 6, there's a Bible student here who can tell me. What extinguishes the fiery darts of the evil one? What? Say it loud. The shield of faith. Around here, we learn that faith is believing God is above God can. Watch. If God is my is, my am. Remember at the burning bush? I am who you said. I am, I am. I am, you are. And when I teach on faith, I talk about my wife because there's nobody else on the planet like her that right now I don't describe her benefit to me in my life of being her intelligence, her calling, her anointing, her beauty, the relationship physically or otherwise. Right now, if you ask me about Brenda, I'll just say, she is. 39 years later, she's it. She's crazy about me, you know that? She's watching right now. I just earned points you can't believe. (laughs) She is. Do you know, ultimately, I believe when worship finally evolves, it finally comes a song. You are the love of my life. You are the hope that I cling to. You mean more than this world to me. I wouldn't trade you for silver or gold. But it's the you are song. I've written you are song. Because at the end of it all, it's not Lord I thank you for, I thank you for, I thank you Oh God, you are. See when God are in my life, he are because... I'll never know how much it costs to pay off that debt you paid through a cross. I'll never know how much it costs. Why, mercy I have received. I'm not sure that Jesus says in order to receive mercy, you have not yet must receive. You have given mercy to others they have not yet gotten. Because that would mean that, what? But I'm certain, he says, if you have already received mercy, 
that if I have already received the opinion of God about what I should have paid and what I should have paid is hell. But he said, I've paid off and now my opinion of you is this. You're paid. When we walk right out into life, and let me tell you, I've said before, we have people sitting here this morning that have been married for a long time. Hey, do you remember me two weeks ago? I told you that while I was preaching, God brought somebody to mind. You want to know why that happens? Uh, Matthew 5, 23. Put that up there, Amanda. If you have a visiting pastor, you're going to walk away and say, that was absolutely the worst homiletical presentation I've ever heard. But I believe you're going to encounter God nonetheless, despite my lack. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, look at me. Are you aware that Jesus is saying these words? Are you aware that when Jesus was alive, offerings and sacrifices in the temple were still taking place? Jesus was saying these on the words before the cross. After the cross, Hebrews says, sacrifices are no longer worthy because they never could accomplish anything anyways. Jesus was that final sacrifice and final payment. Okay, but what are they doing then at the altar? Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and remember that your brother, watch, has something against you. Keep going. Leave your offering. Now, everyone look at me. Do you know the only reason they offered offerings at the offer? Anybody know what the offerings were for? They were called, there's a blank, blank offering. So who's your test? Somebody fill in that blank real loud for it. What is it? Sin offering. Read the Old Testament. It's a sin offering. If you're there making your sin offering... What is that? You're there trying to pay for the problem and you remember your brother has something against you. Stop. Now what happens when we come in here and we're starting to sing? I'll never know how much it costs. We're celebrating our offering at the altar. God brings it to mind. Have you ever wondered why he brings it to mind then? Because the reason being we are bringing up the issue. God, I'm so thankful you have paid what I could never pay. And he says, great. Now you go and do the same. Two weeks ago while I'm preaching, this person came to mind, a pastor, that I felt acted inequitably. I think I can probably articulate that and defend it, but it makes no difference. I've told you before, I really excel at forgiveness, and it's not because I'm spiritual, and I always make this laughing sort of statement. It's because I'm smart. Stupid people hold unforgiveness in their heart. Stupid people hand the devil a torch and say, burn my soul. In the South, you could put another word in there, I guess. I don't know. Burn me. Burn me, burn me. That's dumb to me. Just, it don't have to be spiritual. I wish I could just say, and God prompts my heart because it's so spiritual. No, I'm not going to hand the devil a torch and say, look, I may not have to go to hell, but right now, just go ahead and burn me right now. And there are Christians who will say that. That burns me up. And the announcement is, well, it doesn't have to. Well, that burns me up. Response, well, you're the one that gave him the torch with a full can of spiritual propane. (laughs) Well, that burns me up. Well, why don't you reach across and turn the nozzle off? I I mean, see, so I don't do it. But two weeks ago, this came to mind. I thought, oh, I have something there. And then I forgot about it. And so I hear him today driving to present my offering at the altar. And it came back to mind. I picked up the phone. I said, oh, crud, he probably won't be available. He answers the phone. And I said, listen. I don't have even time to talk. And and we've known each other a long, long, long time. And I said, this is going to be awkward because there needs more conversation. But here's the deal. The problem is mine. But I need to ask you to forgive me because I've I've really held unforgiveness against you, I think, because of, of what I felt you said and did here that was just blah, 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 blah. I said, but you know what? After the fact... God just took that. How many are thankful that God causes all things? I'm going to bait you into something, so be careful before you raise your hand. How many are thankful that God causes all things to work together for good, who are called according to God, called according to his purpose, for his purpose, who are called according, right? 
Now, I'm going to ask you, how many are thankful that God causes all things to work together for us? Come on, right now. See, only the, normally everyone here would say, praise God, I'm thanking God for that. But because of the warning I just posted, some of you are saying, no, I'm going to wait and see what he's going to say next. <laughs> well, what I'm going to say next is this. If we're those who believe that God take, and God causes all things, remember? We studied, just looked at it last week and on the fly. The, the, the word things shows up seven more times in Romans 8 after that with these list of things. Things present, things to come, height, depth, principalities, power, nakedness, peril. In other words, stuff happens. But God says, I'm going to cause that to work together for your good. Here is the absolute laughable thing. Why would we be those who stand on the other side and say, God, you took that really bad thing that was just not good and it was an injustice and they were wrong, but you still caused it to work together for my good. But I want to let you know, as much as I acknowledge that, I still want to reserve the right to be mad about it. I still want to reserve the right to be able to remind that person about the injustice and hand them a torch to burn my soul. Anybody get this? So I called and I said... Please, please forgive me. And I knew I would respond. He said, he said, man, absolutely. He says, I'm so sorry that I did anything that would cause that. And I said, great, I receive that, but I don't know that the problem's yours. It's most certainly mine. Okay, so here's where we're going to quit. I just got to quit. If I can give mercy to get mercy, I don't need the cross. But if I have received mercy and do not give mercy, I do not understand the cross. Now, that's got to stay there for a minute. I want you to, we're going to read it together out loud once, and then you're going to tell it to the person next to you. Everybody get this from the story? Now, there's a bunch more I want to say right now, but I'm going to do you a favor and stop, okay? Can, can you see that? Okay, I moved over here out of the light, so this background's dark because I'm the guy back there. So, um, everybody ready? Let's go. If... I can give mercy to get mercy. I do not need the cross. But if I have received mercy and do not give mercy, I do not understand the cross. And what happens as a result of that? Two weeks ago, I stood here and screamed out loud that the primary issue, watch, with unforgiveness is that I scream in the face of God according to 1 Peter chapter 1. I scream in the face of God. And if you didn't hear this, you need to go listen to it. I can tell you when I preached. It was on Labor Day weekend. You need to go listen to that sermon. (laughs) The cross is not enough. Unforgiveness screams that in the face of God. And I laid out the biblical and theological reasons why. And when that happens, there's two times in Scripture says, if you don't forgive, then there's nothing I can do for you. Why? Please listen. Because forgiveness is acknowledging the payment of the cross. Listen, Matthew 18, forgiveness is acknowledgement of the payment of the great king. The payment the great king made for me is the cross. There are people sitting here today that you've been hurt by a parent, a grandparent, someone 40 years ago, someone who who hurt you, molested you, rejected you, divorced you, unjustly treated you. And and, and to add insult to all of that is you're handing hell the torch to burn your soul right now. But what happens if we say, I'll never know. How much it cost to see my sin. Get the key of C and I'll start over. We're done. Sorry I went so long, but you did need to hear it. I don't know. Maybe I just needed to say it. We've had points of repentance here. Father, quench the fire, the fiery darts. Don't bow your heads yet. Look at me. Quench the fiery darts. Quench the fiery darts of the adversary. And I'll never know how much it costs to pay for my sins. Oh, my. Upon that cross 
God, I want more mercy in my life. I, I, don't, I don't understand how it works. But I do know if, if I'll extend what came to me through the cross, it becomes a never-ending fountain in me welling up and flowing. So here I am to worship. Here I am to bow down. And to say that you are God and I'm not it. (laughs) You know, in the Old Testament, when Joseph's brothers came to him, go read it, end of Genesis. His brothers came to him who had done him wrong, sold him out, lied, trashed him. Now their father died. And he said, uh, they came to him because, you know, he's powerful now. You got to go read the story. They came to Joseph and said, hey, our, our, our father's dead. And, you know, he's the only reason that you've been nice to us all these years. That, that, that happened back there. You see, we quote his response as if it's some sort of spiritual ode where Joseph's floating above the ground. And an older, fully grown Joseph says, Am I in God's place? Am I in God's place? Oh, no. You see, unforgiveness makes me God. Who? That's not just poetry. Am I in God's place? And see, why God steps back and says, I'll let you walk by the force of your opinion... If you want to be God and let your opinions final instead of mine, then, you know, I'm only God if you ask me to be. I'm in God's place. So when I was kneeling here and saying, see, because ultimately forgiveness flows out of this. Here I am to worship. I've come to bow down. And say that you're my God. All together lovely. Endless in your mercy. There's some of you here that are benediction right now. I told you the older I get, the longer I do this, the less I know how to do church. I don't mean to put you on the spot, but I just think you need to step out from where you are. Matter of fact, you can still, let's all stand up, right? If you want, come on, let's do that. That way at least has gives you hope that you're closer to getting to leave. But there's some of you that need to just step out. I don't know that anybody needs to pray with you or for you today. We do that here at the close of every service. And you just need to find a place if you can. And you need to make a declaration here today that there are areas in my life where, wow, I just discovered that I'm trying to push God out of being God and I'm trying to take his place. So I don't know that I want people to know that. That's nothing. Don't worry about that. Humility is a point at which I embrace God's idea of me above my preservation of the image of me. That's what humility is. That's why it's important. So I want you to just step out from where you are and say, Here I am to worship. Here I am to bow down. Here I am to say that you're my God. Altogether lovely. Endless in your mercy. Altogether wonderful to me. Father, I pray for us here today. (laughs) Oh my, what a force we would be.
We walked out of here and, and said, oh, I'm going to go find somebody this week and I'm going to live the song. I'm going to play it in the background of my soul that I'll never know how much it costs. Father, I've got wealth of mercy I can I can give to somebody this week. Put them in my path. You've given me a wealth and a bank account of mercy that I can never exhaust. And I'm going to give it to somebody <laughs> 60 minutes after I get out of this place. There's some we need to give it to before we even leave this place, beloved. For some of us, you came here with them. You need to look them right in the face and say, Please forgive me. I've carried this. There is a God, and I'm not Him, and neither are you, and I've been looking for you to give me something that you can't give because I've already received it. Now, to that end, everybody open your eyes, lift your heads. Watch this. Lift up a holy hand. Come on. <laughs> and now, Lord. No, we'll start over. And now, Lord. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. Oh, God, my rock and my redeemer. Father, I pray for your people today that you'd bless them and keep them and cause your face to shine on them. And as we come to the close of this and there seems to be such a, an attending, hovering Holy Spirit of you over this place of the possibilities of a moment. We're going to do one more thing. I'm sorry, it's gone much longer than we normally do. Put your hands down, bow your heads. <laughs> I'm the only one looking around. I'm going to do this quickly. If you're here and you say, I just realized I'm not God. There's somebody I have to forgive. There's somebody I have to give some of my mercy to. Just lift your hand up right now with me. Okay? Amen. Amen. You receive that. You do it. You take the word of the Lord and you do it in Jesus' name. And now, Father, for your people, may you bless them and keep them and cause your face to shine on them. Be gracious unto them and lift your countenance upon them. And give them peace for their children of God, blessed of the Most High, blessed coming in and blessed going out in Jesus' name. And I ask this and make bold declaration of it in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So be it. Amen. Thank you for joining us for the New Hope Sermon of the Week. For more information about this podcast or other resources, visit newhopeonline.com.